and welcome to the BPL podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Laser, and I'm here today with a very special guest, Ruth Awad. Ruth, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Ruth Awad is an award-winning Lebanese-American poet whose debut poetry collection, Set to Music, A Wildfire, won the 2016 Michael Waters Poetry Prize and the 2018 Ohio Anna Book Award for Poetry. She is the recipient of a 2020 and 2016 Ohio Arts Council Individual Excellence Award. Her work has appeared in a number of publications, and she has led and facilitated numerous poetry workshops. She has an MFA in poetry from Southern Illinois University Carbondale, and she copy edits for Button Poetry. She writes and lives in Columbus, Ohio with her band of Pomeranians. So Ruth, uh, let's start with how you have fared as a creative person during the pandemic. Like, have you found it difficult to write or are you working on anything new? Super difficult to write. I feel like with everything going on, there are constant distractions. And while you see some folks talking about how now's the perfect time to get that creative project done, I have just been burdened by the time on my hands and the time at home with worrying about the state of the world. But I have, I've managed to write, I think, two poems since the pandemic started, which is not not a great amount of production (laughs) by any means, but it's something, darn it. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, (laughs) I I feel like early on there was sort of all these like, now it seems quaint or naive thoughts of like, (laughs) I'll have all this free time to like focus on creative pursuits. Now's the time to write that novel. <laughs> I remember seeing that going around on Twitter and I was just like, no, it's not going to happen. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And not to mention, like, um, so I recently talked with Maggie Smith on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And since she's releasing a new collection this month, and like, so we talked about also what it's like to release things out into the world when, like, you can't do in person events and book tours. And so it's like a little bit anticlimactic or like you just kind of put it out there and, like that's that. <laughs> yeah, I've seen so many of my friends who've had uh, new collections released this year navigating those choppy waters of the virtual book launch. Um, and, you know, I think that poets are faring incredibly well given the, the conditions under which they're having to operate. Um, but, you know, having launched my co-edited anthology this year. I, I personally know what that's like, and it's been difficult to navigate. Um, we were excited about launching the anthology at AWP, and we ended up not going because that's right when the pandemic started. And yeah, we've been trying to navigate like how how do we give this the platform that this work deserves because we have so many lovely contributors. And um me and my co-editor worked so hard on the collection and it's just like, what do you do? You just have to roll with the punches. Yeah, for sure. I feel like, I don't know, poets, musicians, artists, like we, <laughs> that's sort of the life, right. As, a, as a creative yeah. person. So like, like you said, like we found ways to adapt. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so, and you, you mentioned your collection. So, so I noticed like one of your most re- immediately recognizable interests is dogs and animals. Um, so you had like a pet poetics blog, um, the poetry collection that you edited that was released in March, um, the familiar wild on dogs and poetry. So I was curious, like, is this a lifelong love or like what, what fostered your, your love for animals and dogs? Oh, I don't even know. I, I adopted my first dog when I was 19 and it kind of 
she unlocked the magic that is dogs in my life. And it's just been um, almost a religious obsession for me since then. <laughs> I always say that I, I put too much emotional burden on my poor dogs. Like they alone are almost responsible entirely for like keeping my emotional life afloat. So <laughs> <laughs> they do good work. Um, but my co-editor, Rachel Menes, is very much a kindred spirit in that sense. Um, she has one rescue dog, and we read together in Pittsburgh, and we're talking about the Pet Poetics blog, how I was interviewing fellow poets about their craft and how, if ever, it correlates with their love and caretaking of their animals and I was really surprised by the response to that. Um, so many poets were really enthusiastic about um, contributing to that project and being interviewed and having that space to talk about how their craft meets their love for animals. And so Rachel and I were talking about it because I'd interviewed her for the blog. And we decided to make an anthology about dogs <laughs> and just see if there was any interest there and there was a ton of interest, we had so many submissions from so many incredible writers and it was really difficult to narrow it down to the uh, poets who we ended up um, spotlighting in the collection, but it's amazing. I, I can't read the anthology without crying. It's just crying from both joy and it also grapples with the grief of losing uh, beloved dogs and, you know, rescuing dogs and it's, it's amazing. I'm so honored to have been a part of that project. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a great idea. And like, I mean, I'm not surprised you had so many submissions because like a lot of people love dogs. It's not, it's not a tough sell. So like, like what a great idea. Um, and yeah, there's some like amazing names on that collection too. Oh my goodness. So many amazing names. Um, we were lucky to get Maggie Smith is one of our contributors, Hanifa Durkeeb, um, Chen Chen, so many amazing writers and folks in that anthology. And one of the things we are considering when we took on the project is that it's not the first dog poetry anthology in the world, but we did notice that the anthologies that were out there were primarily spotlighting um, voices by white writers. And we thought that there was um, room for exploit exploration and the unique relationship between the poet and artist and who belongs to an othered identity who doesn't usually get the chance to discuss or explore that relationship with their animals in poetry and are kind of constantly tasked with being a representative of their entire group. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So we made a pointed call for uh, contributors who do belong to those um, marginalized groups like writers with disabilities, writers of color, and we gave those priority when we were reviewing submissions. Yeah, that's uh, that's really great. I hadn't realized that, to be honest. So, yeah, definitely like adds like a, a special angle to it for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, so cool. You know, when I was kind of like reading some work, getting ready for the podcast, um, there was one poem that really stuck out to me of yours. In the gloaming and the roiling night. I, I'll like spare everyone like me reciting the poem or whatever. I'll link the full yeah. poem in the podcast notes. Um, but I do want to talk about like, so the last few lines of the poem. So you say, do you burn because you remember darkness? Outside the joy is clamoring. It is almost like the worst day of your life is ordinary for everyone else. 
And in your description of the poem, like you mention inspecting grief and like realizing how like nothing has changed for most people around you, but you might as well be like a fly caught in amber. Mm-hmm. And that like, I felt like that was like such an apt description um, for like feeling grief and like sort of contextualizing it. Is that, um, I think that was part of a collection or a few poems, right? That's uh, actually going into my new collection in progress. So um, I am working on a longer series of poems that explore grief and the singular nature of it. I think um, one of the things that's been most striking to me about my experiences with grief is how lonely it is. And it's lonely in a very singular and specific way in that even when someone else is sharing in your loss or your experience, you still have to go through every single day in your own internal space. And that is so isolating that it's one of the few moments in your life when you realize that you can never really know another person truly. You know what I mean? You don't know what's going on inside their their headspace. You don't know exactly where they're at. Um, and that poem specifically was born of my realization that one of the most painful parts of grieving is that the world spins on without you. You know, that even though it feels like the lights have dimmed in your personal world, everything spins on and carries on normally, even though like nothing feels normal to you. And I wanted to capture in that small lyric that that specific feeling. Yeah, well, I, I felt like you captured it very well. And like, to me, like, I don't know, like my reaction to it was almost like, you know, I feel like one of the things as you, you know, you age and you experience grief and you get more familiar with it is like, like putting it in a larger context or like thinking about like sort of removing yourself from it, even when it's all encompassing can help you like, you know, add some, I can help add some perspective, I think. Yeah. But also like in a way, like you're saying, when the, the world keeps turning, it almost minimizes it at the same time. And it's almost like a way that if you do that too much, you don't allow yourself to feel it or like process it. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen Fleabag? Oh my goodness. Have I seen Fleabag? Yes. <laughs> I, fe- I felt like... Seen, oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. I felt like if we were going to talk about grief, like I had to ask like uh, in terms of like how a television show deals with that, it's probably like my absolute favorite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love how the first season is just her essentially trying to outrun her grief and how much of a, a folly that endeavor is. Cause it always catches up to you. And then the second season is her kind of like finding her feet under her with reckoning with that loss. Um, so beautifully done. The last the last episode with the priest obliterates my heart. <laughs> yes, I. It's one of those shows. So I've only seen it once, and I always want to rewatch it because, like, it's it's that good, but also like it's just so emotionally draining that I, I haven't yet. But yes, that yeah. that scene, such a good cap on the show. And kind of on that topic, have you seen the leftovers? No, I, I'm not familiar with that actually. Oh my goodness! Okay. So you don't even have to be a Justin Thoreau fan to get on board with the show because it's amazing. But my fascination with the show is it's kind of this thought experiment of what would it look like if the entire globe 
were grieving at once and they were all grieving the same thing. And the show just kind of plays out that thought experiment. And it's so beautiful and so haunting and so surreal. I can't recommend it enough. How, how do you watch it? Like, is it on a platform or anything? Streaming platform? It's on HBO. Okay. So if you have HBO Go or whatever the streaming version of it is, you should be able to watch all three seasons. Yes. Three seasons. Okay. Yeah, I'll check that out. It sounds like an interesting premise. That's great. Yeah, for sure. Um, in your 2016 collection, uh, set to music, A Wildfire. So you explore the experiences of your father um, surviving the Lebanese Civil War, immigrating to America, starting a family. So I was curious, like, like when I've spoke to writers and poets on the podcast in the past, like, I'm always interested in, like, the, like, emotional labor of, like, basically, like, mining others' experiences, whether it's someone you're very close to, like your own father or otherwise, like, so I was curious, like, how did mining those experiences affect you? That's such a good question. So I think that I have to begin by answering that with some groundwork. I took on the project for selfish reasons. Um, me and my sisters were born and raised in the United States. And while my dad had referenced the war, you know, throughout our lives and as we were growing up, he, he, you know, as a parent and sheltered us from that, like didn't really divulge too much about it. I'd always heard references to my father living during a war. And it wasn't until I was in grad school that it struck me how weird that is that like, your dad lived through a war and you have not asked him anything about it. It's strange. So I decided to start interviewing my dad as a way to understand him and to understand that side of his life that he, I think, you know, for my own sake and for my own protection kept from me. And so we started having these really formal interviews where I sat down with my dad and kind of took him question by question and asked him about his childhood and what it was like to be a civilian uh, during wartime, you know, the effect it had on his family and, you know, what prompted him at last to immigrate and did he regret it? And that was kind of like, of course, I asked him a million other questions, but those were kind of like the, the heart that ended up in the collection. Um, so it was really edifying for me to finally understand a side of my father that I didn't for the longest time, you know? And I feel like if I hadn't, if I hadn't took on that labor and, to clarify, I feel like my father did most of the emotional labor. I was trying to be careful in my questions and in how I interviewed him to make sure that I wasn't re-traumatizing him by asking all, him all these questions and checking in with him to make sure that he was still, he still felt up for it. But, you know, thinking about your parents in danger and thinking about the trauma that they've endured is uh, humbling and eye-opening. So I felt mostly just gratitude for understanding my dad as a person and by proxy, better understanding myself and my heritage. Um, it led to a, a broader research project where I was really studying the Lebanese Civil War 
And I interviewed my father's friends that he grew up with during the war to get another perspective um, and talk to family members. And it was a really, I don't know, a formative project for me. I don't think that I could write the poems that I'm writing today without that foundation. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a, you know, expansive project, like, you know, like emotionally, and um, I'm sure it changed the dynamics of your relationship uh, with your father. And, and yeah, it's even, you know, if you, you know, don't have a parent that went through these experiences, like even under um, different circumstances, like there are always these sort of internal lives that they lead um, and, and whatnot that you might not ever get to explore. So like, it's great that you decided like, Oh, I'm going to like be intentional and like learn these things and, you know, learn more about your heritage and whatnot. Yeah. I, I can't recommend it enough. Like my dad is by no means a, an avid storyteller, but you know, when you find the thing that they've kind of been keeping to themselves, I think it can be a really, it can be a good bond experience. It certainly was for me and my dad. Um, and now, you know, whenever we talk on the phone, I'll just throw random questions at him and see where the conversation takes us. And it's been, it's been really good for our relationship. Good, good. Yeah. And so do you feel like those questions that you throw out now, like you wouldn't have been able to, to do that before? I feel like we've kind of learned how to, how to engage with each other in that way. He knows that like, I have this constant curiosity about, uh, my heritage and about like what it means to him. And we talk a lot about survivor's guilt and the burden of assimilation and the separation between him and his family and that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, it's just helped me get a better handle on his, on his interior life, you know, like you said. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're running a bit short of time here. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but, um, is there anything you wanted to plug anything coming up? Slowly working on that second collection. Uh, I would love if listeners would check out The Familiar Wild on dogs and poetry. You don't have to be a dog lover to admire these poems either. Um, pretty much if you're just a fan of contemporary poetry, you'll see your favorites in those pages. And, you know, if you are a dog lover, it's a bonus. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah, so I'll definitely I'll, I'll link, um, link to that in the show notes. Um, so, so yeah, Ruth, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really great talking with you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. 